And we are live. Welcome to another interview with the Fight Site. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined with Eamon Zahabi. Eamon, how are you doing today? I'm very good. Thank you for having me on, Ben. Our pleasure. Uh, before we begin, make sure that you check out thefightsite.com. <laughs> Great job. <bro. laughs> <coughs> I already had Corona, so I'm fine. <laughs> now I'm good. <laughs> uh, um, thank you for joining us. And uh, well, make sure you check out thefightsite.com. You'll be treated to just a plethora of phenomenal articles and breakdown pieces and by incredible analysts and writers. Uh, Make sure that you check us out on YouTube and Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. That's where our podcasts are at. Make sure you like, subscribe, share. Check us out on Patreon. You can support us directly. You get access to the Discord server. Uh, you can ask questions for the podcast. Uh, you can even pay for us to analyze your fight tapes. So it's just amazing stuff. And with that, let's jump right into it. Uh, we have Eamon Zahabi, like I said, from uh, TriStar fame. Uh, you know, obviously, your brother is Faraz, one of the most famous coaches in MMA. Uh, but before we get into talking about that, I wanted to know more about your background. How did you get involved in MMA? I know that your your father was really uh, invested in making sure that you and your brothers knew how to defend yourselves. Talk to us about your background. Yeah, we were young. My father would always want to make sure that we didn't get bullied. So my oldest brothers, he had signed them up to karate. And uh, by the time I was born, they weren't doing karate so much anymore. They moved on to Muay Thai. And then... Uh, then they started, Faraz started, was the first one to go into jujitsu from my brothers. So then eventually I started first with Muay Thai and then started working in jiu-jitsu, but mostly just on how to protect myself in high school, not really to go out and become a professional fighter. So it really just started like that, you know, just also to build self-confidence. Right. Uh, so when, after you built all that confidence, you obviously graduated high school and got past that. What made you decide, I think maybe I should go into a career in this? Was it because of Faraz with TriStar, or was it your own decision? What was it? So what was happening was um, Faraz had the largest class in TriStar. So like he had the most students uh, than any other trainer at TriStar. And he was traveling a lot with the pro fighters. So to keep the class like pretty much the same as how he teaches it, when he would travel, I would teach the class. Because mm -hmm. he was training me all the time, right? So uh, I would run the classes. And then eventually guys were asking me to help them coach, uh, help for us coach when Frost was out of town, right? So when you'd go with one fighter, all the other fighters are still around. So I started helping out with the coaching and I was sparring all the fighters and I was doing pretty well. And I was like, you know what? I, I, I spar really good with these pro fighters and these guys are, are like winning and, you know, they're moving on to the UFC and they're moving on to better and better leagues. Maybe I could do this as well. So then I, I started to get the itch for fighting. So I started, you know, like amateur fights, wrestling tournaments, uh, jiu-jitsu matches, jiu-jitsu tournaments. And I just worked my way up to being a fighter. Awesome. And I, I, I interviewed um, uh, Kamaru Usman's brother, Mohamed Usman, uh, not long ago, maybe last week or so, or a week before that. And I asked him about, you know, does having a brother like Kamaru affect you in a positive way, a negative way? Does it put pressure on you to succeed? And he said that, uh, I know he doesn't train as much with Kamaru as you do with Faraz, but uh, he, he explained that it's only been positive and it's only pushed him to become better. Do you have that same experience with Faraz or is there something that kind of pressures you a little bit and makes it a little bit more half to succeed, I guess? I don't know. Um, well, not really. Like, in this, like our, my relationship with my brother is we want the best outcome for me. Like, we both want the best for me. So it's mm -hmm. all positive in that sense. 
there is the only negative I would say is the outside like social media. Like they expect me to win every fight with a black backspin, uh, back spin <laughs> punch kick. You know, like uh, when I won my first fight in the UFC, uh, I almost uh, dropped, uh, stopped the guy in round one. Yeah, I almost stopped the guy in round two. And in early in round three, when I came to like I came to get, bring the fight, but I got poked in the eye. I didn't stop the time. Like I just went with it, but it affected me, and I couldn't see very well. So I didn't crush him as much in round three. Like I didn't really hurt him so bad in round three. But I pushed it at the end, and like everyone was so upset at my performance. But I feel like I came to fight. Still, like I really showed a lot. But because Frost is my brother, and I didn't knock the guy out with something spectacular, crazy thing. That's the only negative. But being a you know his student and stuff like that, that's all positive. That's pretty much what I expected to hear. Uh, so speaking of the the fights you've had so far, uh, I know that you spoke after the Ricardo Ramos fight, and you were actually I I, I mean I, I was rewatching the fights just for obviously for this interview, and yeah. I mean you were definitely winning in my opinion based on yeah. the rules and how the fights are scored. I would say that you were winning that fight, yeah. and you got caught in that spinning back fist. Um, yeah. You said that you, when you came back to fight uh, against um, what's against Morales, against Morales, yes, you were a little overly cautious and felt yeah. like you weren't going forward as much. Yeah. But I also noticed that when you were coming forward and yeah. when you were being the aggressor, is when you were winning those exchanges. Yeah. How is it? How are you gonna? Wh what are you doing to kind of, I guess, um, meld that portion? Because in all three of your fights, you were coming forward and you were, you were basically forcing them on the back foot, you were able to catch them with boxing combinations, and that's when you were really landing your best shots. What are you doing to, I guess, adjust to continue to do that while also, I guess, being a little bit more safe, I guess is the best way of putting it? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Actually, an amazing question. And my answer is uh, a little bit long-winded. I don't know if I can, should I just go for like a full- Go, go, go. We love, yeah. we love, I want to get into your mind. I want to know okay, how okay, you guys cool. work, how that's you guys awesome. think. Okay, great. So like, what I would say is, first of all, I, uh, I've been watching uh, other fighters who do something similar where they can come inside and- Apologies for the technical difficulties, everyone. <laughs> all right, so we left off with the uh, question of the adjustments you're going to make, so- yeah. Please. Basically, a, a guy that I look up to who does it already is John Wayne Parr. Mm. You know, and I, I watched some of his cage Muay Thai fights, and he, I think some of his fights, he's 38 years old, and he's walking guys down who are like 27, 28. And these guys, you know, they're in great shape. They're good quality Muay Thai fighters, and he's fighting them with small gloves. And he keeps a tight shell, and he's able to walk them down and drop them and get in their face. So I watch him. I watch another uh, Muay Thai world champion. His name is uh, Rodlek. Uh, he fights for one uh, one FC. Amazing fighter. He walks guys down. I'm also watching Rod Tang. So I'm just like watching those guys and taking some things. And obviously Frost is helping me with it uh, like crazy. And uh, and I have my secret weapon, I think, for my next fight is going to be uh, Arnold Allen. Um, we're going to spar like crazy. For his last fight, we sparred a lot. like Because uh, I was sort of the style he was uh, he was facing. I was able to mimic that his opponent's style, I mean. And then uh, I think for my next camp, I'm going to bring him in because he's such an amazing uh, striker. He so, has such great footwork. And he's going to, if I can walk him down, if I can get in his face, I feel like I can get in the face of a lot of people, you know. So uh, he's an incredible fighter. And, and uh, I'm hopefully going to be able to use him to my advantage as a training partner to better my skills, you know, sharpen myself 
sparring him, training with him. It's, it's, it's interesting. So it sounds like you're really going to be pivoting towards, you've, you've made a decision of like, I'm definitely going, because of the success you've had in prior fights and the, the issues you've had in prior fights, it seems like you're really pivoting towards that. I'm going to make a conscious effort towards being more of a pressure fighter. Well, not not in the sense of every second of the of round. Of course, right. No, no, but I want to I wanna just perfect the moments I do lock a guy down, that they're clean, they're cleaner, so that I can do the, I can step in more often than I did previously. And before the knockout, before I lost right. my knockout, you know, right. because after I lost my knockout, I started second guessing like how often I should step in. And there was a lot of moments in the uh, Morales fight where I saw the opening to walk in and I was like, you know what, that's not a clean one. And then I, I kind of doubted my usual timing to walk in, my, my usual spacing, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm just like reviewing those things to make, it, make myself more confident that when I do see one, I know it and I can do it. I can walk in. Not that I just want to walk in blindly all the time and get right. knocked out. Because the guy who just walks forward he gets crushed by someone who has great footwork and great angles. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So uh, that's why I want to train with Arnold. Because if you watch like Arnold's fights, anybody who steps in on Arnie too often gets cracked. You know? So he's kind of going to be like my measuring stick of if I'm walking in too often. Right. You I know? understand. So, so because it, it's like the best fighters don't just walk forward and they don't just back up. Right, so they mm -hmm. do both. They can always be do both. Like uh, I can go forward, I can go backwards, I can go sideways, I can pivot, I can cut angles, I can shoot, I can grapple. So another part of the equation for me is, I've been working a lot of my jujitsu. Like I want to be able to strike with no regard for the takedown in the sense that, obviously, like I'm not just gonna get taken down. That's not what I'm trying to say. But if the guy shoots, I can either completely shut him down or as I'm going down I already enter something that makes him run away from me as soon as we touch the ground as soon as we touch the ground I have the advantage already right that's the kind of mindset so I want to be able to strike completely freely whether he shoots or not I'm going to win that that trajectory towards the ground so kind of in a way where you want to you want to be you want people to be so afraid of taking you down that they'd rather get the crap beaten out of them on the feet, essentially. Yeah, or, or they get so exhausted taking me down because I always just get right back up or I get yeah. into their legs or I get into a guillotine or I get into a, a whip over or I get into something that makes them, oh, you know, second guess the fact that maybe I shouldn't shoot on this guy. Right. Yeah. And Bantamweight has its fair share of decent wrestlers. So that, that would definitely be something you're going to want to sure happens because uh yeah. watch guys like ricky simone and people like that they are generally fearless and if you can get them second guessing yeah you're gonna, they're gonna have a bad time so yeah exactly exactly so bringing up like the the i guess the way of smart entries into your pressure and making sure that you're doing it you know correctly i guess is the best way of putting it yeah. one thing that i i know is is spoken about is i guess the the, the type of a fighter meaning they have a they want to pressure and they're uncomfortable when they're not, or they want to be out fighting. And when you force them to come forward, they're not nearly as comfortable. Do you experience that in your, when you're fighting, do you have a, I like to do something. And when I'm forced to do something else, it's not, I'm not as comfortable or you're trying to just be like, no, I want to be an all around fighter. So I don't really have a type, but I could just do whatever. 
Yeah. So I would say I'm more of a situational fighter in the sense that I like to read the situation and I'll fight the most efficient way I can to take advantage of what the scenario is. You know, so like, let's say, like, for example, if we watch my fight with Ramos, uh, round one, I want to get close to him, clinch him, take him down and, and see how good he is on the ground. And he ended up uh, getting me with some takedowns off, like when I clinched him and I had to scramble back up to my feet and then and work it out, you know. So then I was like, OK, maybe uh, clinching him isn't the best game plan. So in round two, I said, you know what, I'm not letting him take me down. We're going to keep this fight standing. So, like, I completely changed the, the fight in round two. In round one, I was like, okay, let's, let's put the clinch on. Let's grapple. Let's see what's going to happen. Boom, boom, boom. So, I did that a lot. And at one point in round one where I ended up in Ashy, instead of going into heel hooks and going whatever, I said, you know, I just bailed and tried to get up. But I shouldn't have done that. I should have went into the leg entanglement and continued fighting. Like, I, I kind of got nervous. I was never really on my back ever before in the fight, mm -hmm. in any of my fights, I mean. And so I didn't feel like I should just chill out there, but I should have, man. I had, I had Ashy clean. I should have just done what I did, but instead I, I turned to get up and he got my back right at the end of the round. You know, it didn't look good. If I, if that didn't happen, and if I would have went into the legs and turned him, maybe I could have round one round one also. You know, like I right. feel like you can give him round one, and round two I feel like I really shut him down because I changed the game plan. And round three, I was just walking him down. Like I didn't care. His strikes weren't landing. Like he came boom, 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 boom. I was like, oh man, this is. I blocked everything. I walked him down. Blah, blah, blah. And then actually, right before he elbowed me, like, I walked him down so much that I pushed him into the cage and he bounced back off the cage. Yep. And what I remember in the moment, like, when I pushed him and he went flying to the cage, I'm like, as soon as he comes back, I'm going to crush him with a left hook. It's over. So I went with a predetermined strike instead of reading the situation. Instead of, like, I said, you know what? I'm going to step to the right and throw a hook. He's dead. I literally told myself that in the fight. And I didn't pay attention to what he was actually going to do. I just went with something preset. And because I went with something preset and I threw it, he caught me in between my strike with his elbow. You know, Because the two other elbows he threw, one in round two, I ducked it. I, I grabbed his waist and I pushed him away. And the one just before that, he missed. Like, it just like, just like, it just like deflected off me a little bit. Like, it didn't really land anything. It didn't land anything clean. So I had no, at that point, I had no respect for his uh, striking power. Because round one, he didn't hurt me with strikes. Round two, he didn't hurt me with strikes. And at the beginning of round three, I was, I was walking through everything. I was blocking. I was covering. So I thought he was done, you know? Like, I was just like, I have his number. And then, boom, I got caught, you know? So, uh, pivoting off that, how much, how important is it, do you think, to, to, to kind of like, obviously, every fighter has a game plan before they come into a fight. Yeah. But how important is it to adjust to the situation it is because you're talking about i guess organic versus rote combinations and rote striking yeah. uh and obviously it's important to like you said adjust the situation but it's also you have to be able to have pre-programmed yes yeah and, and and defensive maneuvers and counters where do you do you have do you think that you're at that point where you found the right balance of that and also how much of an adjustment should you make versus keeping to the game plan somewhat Where's, what's your mindset at the moment on those? You know, it's, uh, it takes a lot of time to figure out because you got to mm -hmm. fight, right? And unfortunately for me, I, I want to fight three, four times a year, but the only, I only get the opportunity to fight once a year. It's brutal. But like now I'm at the point where I feel like I know how to play better within the game plan, but can also break the, the rules of the game plan when needed because of my experience level. Like I finally reached the point 
where I feel more seasoned, especially after the Ramos fight, I was mostly upset that there was a lot of moments I didn't take that I felt were correct. But I wanted to stick so much to the defensive game plan we had for that fight. Because listen, I know a lot of people <clears throat> were questioning why I was so defensive, but Vince Morales has power in his right hand. Like, he has power. And like, I don't feel like people gave him the credit that he deserved after that fight. And like, you see, after when he fought me, he dropped the next guy he fought, he dropped him in round one. Right. You know, and I thought he won that fight, actually. They, they gave the decision to the other guy. He did a great job. And I'm not just saying that. I, I really thought he won. But it just goes to show that I was being so aware of his right hand because I know he's got the power. Like, I've been watching fights since I was young. I know when a guy has power in his, in his especially at Bantam weight, not everyone drops people at 135, right. you know. And he's got some power. The guy, he knows how to box. So now I feel like if I would fight him again, I would do a lot better job of t uh, the moments that I saw, I would have capitalized on them mm -hmm. instead of letting him off the hook. I feel like a lot of times in that fight, I let him off the hook, you know, and especially right. in round three, like I thought I had banked round one and two. And in round three, I was like, okay, don't do what you, don't do what you, in my mind, I was like, don't do what I did with Ramos and go so crazy that I get knocked out. But instead of keeping the pace that was working for me, I kind of took my foot off the gas a little bit too much. Right. And I obviously lost round three. Okay. And then, uh, like, I, that's something I admit and it's something I, I, I regretted after the fight. Like, as soon as the fight was over, I was telling Frost, like, I can't believe what I did in round three. I can't believe I let it get away. Like, I can't believe I, I said, you know what? I won the two rounds. Uh, don't go too crazy. I, no, you know, I wasn't wrong to say don't go too crazy, but right. I just went too defensive. Right. Yeah, I should have just kept a strong, steady pace, but not oh, like go wild. Uh, speaking of that particular point, did you see the fights last night? The at least the main. No, event? I, I didn't get to see the fights last night. I had some some stuff here uh, sure. going on. I'm assuming you know the results. I don't want to spoil them if you didn't. If you I know. Heard. I know. The, I know the Gilbert Burns uh, Tyron Woodley result. Right. Yeah, so, I'm going to try to watch the fights uh, hopefully today this week. Definitely go watch at least that fight as soon as you get yeah. a chance. But in the Listen, fifth round. This, I, yeah. like, I, I don't want to say anything like because uh, I, I didn't watch the fights. But what an amazing streak for Gilbert Burns. That's oh, all yeah. I can say. This guy has really turned the corner in his career. I don't know how he did it. Like, and maybe it's just a mental. Sometimes it's just your self-image, you know. Because he always had the right skills, the raw skills. The, you know, he had a good striking. His striking always getting better. His jiu-jitsu was phenomenal. His wrestling's great. But I think that there's this, like a self-confidence change that now he's going to be a wrecking force for the 170. I, I, I completely agree. And, and I mean, that weight cut must have been brutal because when you see the fight, he does not look small next to Tyron Woodley. And Tyron's no. not a small guy. So yeah. he looks thick with three Cs. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's incredible. But you actually see, like, in the fifth round, he dominated the fight, winning every round. And in the fifth round, he did not, like you said, he didn't really take his foot off the gas. He continued to utilize the, the game plan that was actually winning him the fight rather than, I got four rounds in the bag. I definitely got potentially a 10-8 round one. Yeah. I don't need to risk anything. And he, you know, he ate a big shot, I think, um, in the fifth round also. But, like, didn't phase him. And I mm -hmm. think that what you're saying is important. Like, again, with judges – yeah, you know, you never know. Yeah, don't risk it. Keep what's working, and it's it's really interesting to point it out. Like that's where you feel that you suffered, is that you didn't keep to what you felt was working too. So I'm really. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Speaking of, I, I actually want to pivot to jujitsu because I'm a jujitsu <laughs> boy. I'm a jiu-jitsu boy. I am a jujitsu boy. Um, I, I want to actually get your opinion. Uh, your black belt, Faraz, has you know the guys at TriStar are all incredible jujitsu guys. Um, Thank you. And I wanted to get your opinion on on, on jujitsu and MMA, the jujitsu metagame. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts on it? Just as an overall view, and then I guess we can get into a little bit of specifics. So. Like my overall view is you can't only be jujitsu anymore. Okay. Mm -hmm. You have to find the entry that works for you. Okay. So let's say like, for example, okay. I have uh, a great opportunity to train with Ryan Hall. Okay. He comes over to Montreal. I've been to Virginia. I've trained with him multiple times. Great training partner, great friend. And I also get to train separately when I go to Henzo's with Gary Tonin. Okay. And I spar him, I spar him in MMA. Mm -hmm. Okay. And now, these are two phenomenal grapplers, some of the best grapplers in the world, and just jiu-jitsu too. Okay? Right. Just, even in jiu-jitsu, they're phenomenal. Right. Okay? And, uh, but I feel like they both approach jiu-jitsu in a different way when it comes to MMA. And you see that you know, uh, Ryan Hall uses the Minari role more, and he does a lot of spinning attacks, back fists, hook kicks, spin kicks, all these different things. And when guys come and strike him, sometimes he sits down to guard and does his thing. Right? But all he's trying to do is to get you to play jiu-jitsu. All that stuff is, if, if, if you want to fight me, come fight me in jiu-jitsu. I can't wait. I can't freaking wait for you to grab, on, grab onto me. Get on top of me, man. Like, he's just enticing you to get on top. Whereas, like, when you watch Gary Tolan fight, and I spar Gary, he's like, okay, uh, you, want, you don't want to come on the ground to me? Come on the ground with me? I'm going to get so in your face with my head movement and this and that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break the distance. He finds a way. To get so close to you with his head movement and his footwork, and uh, him and John work, do a lot of great entries with footwork and head movement and slipping and blocking. To get so close that he can grab onto you and get in your legs and then just shoot into a ashy from a single leg or grabs your waist, shoots in. Or if you clinch with him, oh, he's in your legs, he's in this, he's in that. So uh, two different approaches, but you need some kind of way to funnel the guy into your game. Whereas sometimes, sometimes if you're an amazing grappler, like for me, I think, Tony Ferguson is a great grappler, great jiu-jitsu guy. For MMA, he's very good. He's got great triangles, got great submissions, great guard game, incredible flexibility, and flexibility plays a huge role. He's strong and he has a great mindset. But the last fight with Justin Gaethje, his how, like, I think it was the only thing that was missing for him to win was for him to turn it into a grappling fight. How come he couldn't get get you to the ground he couldn't you know it's not easy to beat george st pierre and double everybody we don't have the physical right. attributes or the fist or the timing or the the eye the vision to see that double leg takedown or the explosivity it takes to do that or george's single to double not everybody has that so you have to find a creative way as a grappler to get the guy to grapple you how are you going to get them to grapple you it's not easy it's not easy you know especially if they know you're amazing at grappling right you know, Damien is, yeah, sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but Damien no. is another guy who, let's say, he shoots a single, gets you in a single, goes to deep half on his back, but he's amazing at deep half, who cares? He's going to end up sweeping you, doing whatever. It doesn't matter, but once he grabs you, he's going he's to grapple you. Right. right? That was it. actually the guy I was going to bring up, because I know he does, Damien Maya has, I mean, at middleweight, he was struggling to get guys down. Obviously, there was the size issue at play. He was not the biggest guy at middleweight. Wasn't small necessarily, but he wasn't the biggest guy. And then he drops the welterweight, and suddenly we see him have this incredible. Suddenly, he's been working on it, but yeah. this incredible cage wrestling game and yeah. this, this chain wrestling 
and obviously he would pull you into the half guard and then work to get to the single leg like he did with George mm -hmm. Masvidal a lot. Yeah. Uh, do you think more jiu-jitsu guys, especially those who might be on the less athletic side, uh, should kind of pivot towards games like Damian Maya where you really work on chaining those wrestling things, just grab a hold and then get from there? Um, can I just say one thing about the Damian Maya thing before we move oh, on to this? One? Yeah, please. Uh, I feel that Damian's career changed. Like the, the weight class difference, the weight class change made a big difference. Right. But when he stopped pretending to be a striker, made the biggest difference. K1 Maya. You know what I mean? Like, he just needs enough striking to trap guys into grappling. That right. was the real solution. You know, and once he did that and he was able to stop trying to do Muay Thai or stop trying to knock guys out on the feet and really just use striking to funnel guys in the grappling game, I think his career took off big time. And uh, I think that's the biggest change. And I do think that it depends how much how good of a grappler you are to be able to do that. Right. Not every grappler can fight MMA like a Ryan or a Gary or a Damien, you know? So depending on how good you are and what your specialty in jiu-jitsu is, it's, you might need to do that. If you're not necessarily as good as those guys, then you need to work a little bit more on your strikings or your wrestling. I think if you can't hack it, if you're not athletic enough to, to strike, let's say, then you got to find a way to, to, to wrestle. Like a Kobe Covington, let's say. Kobe's going to be in your face. Listen, he's not the most fastest, explosive striker, Kobe, okay? Right. But he can wrestle you forever. He can hold that 80% <laughs> wrestling all night long, okay? If you can maintain, like some wrestlers, they can maintain that 80% grind all night. John Fitch, let's say. Right. John Fitch, he's not athletic in the sense of he can jump the highest or run the fastest or punch the fastest or kick the fastest. But he can grind you out for 80% for 25 minutes like look at the fight he had with rory uh yeah. in, that was nuts that was a couple times rory grappling. dropped him he just, <laughs> he's like this he turns around grabs the leg climbs rory's leg like you, you can't believe it you can't believe it but he has a different type of, of athleticism him if he added more like i'm not saying he doesn't have more, uh, great jiu-jitsu he has good jiu-jitsu but if he got his jiu-jitsu to the level of damien maya he'd be subbing even more guys right like, he's sick he's a sick fighter i'm not saying he's not a sick yeah, fighter. Yeah. I think he's an amazing, amazing all-around fighter. But uh, if he had more six subs, shit, he'd be more on fire. <laughs> well, actually, I was, I was. Um, uh, that's something that you actually see with a lot of wrestlers is that they kind of gear towards the ground and pound much more than they yeah. do uh, submissions. And I, we, we, we were actually talking to um, Curtis Blades, and mm -hmm. he specifically yeah. said, like, we asked him, like, why in your opinion, is that, or at least from your experience, he's like, I like to break people. And from, from that, and, he, and what we asked him was like, does it come from the American wrestling mentality of shove yeah. everyone through the meat grinder? Whoever comes out, those are the guys who are gonna be the best wrestlers. Like just, just literally a meat grinder yeah. is how it was described. And it's like, yeah, that's, he, he, then he went off and explained the mentality and how, why. Yeah. And he said, he's like, He's like, he compared it to basketball. It's like, mm -hmm. um, ground and pound and wrestling is American centers. And yeah. we're the, just come at you. And uh, jujitsu is like the European centers. It's all finesse. And I was like, that. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was great. Oh my so God. Is that, is that something you experience as well in your, in your career so far? Um, in the sense of like training with them? 
training with them, like when you talk with them or train with them, is that something you experience? Like they don't really care about, the, they just want to punch you in the face, I guess? Yeah, well, I guess, I don't know, would you consider Khabib European? He mostly goes for ground and pound. <laughs> but he's wrestling I don't know. first. I think, we have, first. I think we could take the, the Dagestani wrestlers and fighters and just make their own category. Their own category, right? <laughs> but like, he doesn't go for submissions that often. Like, he only goes for submission once he's completely bad. Right. You know, so he's kind of got that, you know, a little bit of American wrestling. Yeah. But yeah, you know, America, a lot of Americans who've wrestled a high level have that mm -hmm. mentality because that's a, the, well, the training camp they go through and wrestle, right? Right. So yeah, I have experienced that. I've seen a lot of Americans like that too, for sure. But uh, there's a, 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 an incredible amount of American jiu-jitsu players that are super sub-oriented. Right. You know? and, uh, I don't know. But yeah, I, I would say that most wrestlers are more grind, grind them up, spin them out type of jujitsu. <laughs> I've had the pleasure to roll with Jake Shields and uh, grind me up pretty nice. Oish, that's a grinder yeah. right there. If there's a grinder, that's that's the definition of just you're gonna have a bad time if Jake gets on top. Yeah, he's uh, incredible. I, I actually want to ask about a specific move. Again, I'm a Marcelo guy, that explains why. But yeah. I wanna know why, in your opinion, we don't see more X-guard usage in MMA because this, the few times we do see people use it, I've seen it be used very successfully and it, it keeps the guy away so that they can't really ground and pound you. It off balances them. It allows you to either get up or use it to get to a leg entanglement or to, you know, sweep and get on top. Do you, do you, have, I just don't know why, like there are certain moves that just don't seem to be brought over that really seem to, would, it would make sense in an MMA context yet we just don't see it. Do you have any thoughts on why? Um, I don't know. That's a good point you bring up because I haven't really noticed that people avoid it so much. But I will say this as someone who's competed in both just a jiu-jitsu match and an MMA match. There is a different level of urgency in MMA versus jiu-jitsu. And by that, I'm not taking a shot at anybody because, you know, it's, it's nothing like that. They're just different sports. But there's, there's a slight... I don't, I don't want to say fear, but respect for getting hit. Okay, so let's say like a lot of guys when they do jitsu in MMA, they want to make sure that they do stuff that really reduces the amount of chance of taking a shot from someone above you. Right. Whereas in in, a, in the jitsu match, where it's like the guy can't hit you, you don't have that same fear of looking out for the strike. You know, you're looking out for submissions. You're looking not to get uh, crushed and squished and you know manipulated in a really bad way. But you don't have that urgency of, oh, man, I can't leave enough of a gap where the guy can swing a really big shot. Right. And when a guy's standing over you, there is an intimidation there because uh, the most powerful strikes are from when a guy's standing above you. So, like, I, I will look into, like, I'll try to pay attention to how often I see X-Guard done in MMA, but I could imagine that that plays a role that when a guy's standing above you, you don't want to be under him. But I right. do think that it is an excellent way to not get hit. I think, yes. personally, that I would use X-Guard. And I actually, like, one of my really good moves, I would say, is when I go to Ashy, usually I go to a short hook, I lift the leg, I put it over my shoulder, and I go to X-Guard. And right. that's what I should have done in the Ramos fight instead of just bailing and going. And that's what I'm saying is that, like, when I did put Ramos in Ashy, I hadn't been on my back for a while like for like a long extended period of time in, a, in MMA fights. And I respected his black belt. At the time, I was a brown belt, I think. And uh, I was like, you know what? 
I'm not going to go to X card. I'm just going to stand up and, and disconnect with him. Whereas I should have went to X card because if I would have elevated his leg and put it over my shoulder and started going to X, he would have to base or defend. He couldn't hit me. He wouldn't be able to hit me, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I should have done it in that moment. So it's, I'm, you know, it's a very good question and I'm happy you brought it up. And Absolutely. hopefully next time I'm on my back, I go to X card and we'll have a, another interview about this. I, I look forward. Give me one second. I'm just going to close the window. I think my father's yeah, using the leaf blower that he just bought, and he's very happy about it. Yeah, no problem. Oh, that is so much better. <laughs> okay, good, good. Yeah, um, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's just um, it's always something that bothered me because I actually just wrote a. a a piece on Marcelo, so like X cards on okay, the line a awesome. little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, now I want to pivot back to to um, just game planning in general because uh, I feel like that's something that TriStar is relatively well known for. You guys are very yeah. three, but I know there's a lot of tape that's watched. Uh, how much of the fights? And, and this is a general thing. Obviously, you have to focus on just improving your skill sets. But how much of it is just strictly geared towards let's improve this specific skill set for this specific fight during the fight camp, or is that something that that is that something that's done specifically? Like we need to work on these three things because that's what's going to work against this guy. Um, yeah, definitely, yeah. and especially like like again, like uh, I have really good training partners, and um, we're all very uh, team oriented. So whenever, let's say, I, for example, I'm fighting. Um, Let's see, when I was fighting, uh, sorry, what's his name? Uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. My first fight in the UFC. Vieira? Reginaldo Vieira, yeah. Reginaldo Vieira, sorry. I, I know his name, sorry. It's just like I had a blank. When I was no, fighting no. Reginaldo Vieira. Um, I was worried about his guillotine because he's had a lot of guillotine success. And let me tell you something. I called uh, Ryan Hall. And I'm like, Ryan, would you mind coming out, help me out for a few days? Like, uh, you know, I'll fly you up, whatever. He's like, of course. Boom, within a week, he was there. And we did it like three days intense of guillotine escapes, okay? Like, he showed me everything I needed to know. Like, he's an incredible resource for me. He's an amazing friend, amazing training partner. And I was training it for the next two months. Every single day, I would do guillotine situation because I was so like, you know what? If I do get into guillotine, I'm not worried about it. I'm going to come through on the other side and I'm going to score on the guy, you know? Mm -hmm. And I did it every day into the fight, and my confidence was through the roof. Like, I wasn't worried about, like, if I ended up in a guillotine situation, I was very certain I would get out and reverse and score. So uh, that's the kind of way I, I would approach it. You know, I would watch my opponent's tape, figure out his best ways to win. Who do I know that's on my team that can replicate that? Help me to come up with a game plan to find my way out, mm -hmm. you know? Sometimes, it, a lot of the time, it's for us, obviously. A lot of times it's someone like Ryan or somebody else on the team. And we'll go to that source and we'll ask them and we'll work with them intensely. And then I'll do it for two months. Right. Or however, however long I have for the fight. It's interesting because uh, the way you're describing it is exactly the way um, John Satava described when we were, he was once um, using me as a grappling dummy. And yes. he was saying, like, he just guillotined me like six times straight. And I'm like, <laughs> The hell? He's an amazing grappler. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and I'm like, listen, I'm not great, but the fuck, man? <laughs> like, like, what was going on? And I asked him, like, why the guillotine? Because you were giving up other positions to get to guillotine. He's like, oh, I'm specifically working on the guillotine for X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, 
oh, so that's how professionals do it. That's what they do. So yeah. it's, it's interesting that you're like, he's like, I was working on the guillotine because he had an upcoming tournament, I think, yeah. and he wanted to really focus on yeah. that. Um, speaking of specific things that I noticed that you like to do, uh, yeah. the Philly show, I want to yes. know how, because a lot of people talk about how like, oh, certain, um, I guess, uh, boxing-oriented um, defensive styles or just stances don't work in MMA. Why did you gear towards using that um, that style, I guess? And what adjustments do you feel you had to make in order to make it work in an MMA context? Yeah, well, the idea behind it is I can't have one guard. Right. I need to have all the guards. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, it's kind of like we're playing rock, paper, scissors with our opponent. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I need to be able to have the guard that defeats his striking. Mm -hmm. So that's why like, we're always practicing all the different types of guards. So like you see, like, sometimes I'm, I'm very good at shelling, mm -hmm. shielding, and sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll lower my hand and I'll block with my shoulder and I'll stand sideways and I'll lean back. Like when I fought Ramos, like Ramos, I knew he was just going to throw crazy power early. So I leaned back over behind my shoulder and I just let him throw early. Like there was one point where he threw like a three-strike combo and I was just like, ugh. And he just he threw it in the air and the crowd went crazy. And I was like, yeah, that's great. Thank God I didn't get touched. Because even if you shield those, he threw them so hard. Right. It was going to affect me. Like, not necessarily knock me out, but it was going to push me. It was going to do this and that. And I didn't want to give him any setups. So I was like, this will cost me less. And hopefully he won't touch me at all. And I won't mm -hmm. take any on the arms. I won't take any anywhere. You know, so it's like, again, like I like to play the situational game. So it's like I'm always playing rock, paper, scissors with my opponents. So one way we develop it is... Some sessions, for us, makes us spar one guy hands down, one guy hands up. Mm -hmm. So Interesting. You have to learn to fight with your hands down, and the other guy has to learn how to fight with his guard up. Mm -hmm. And then next round, same partner switch, let's say. So now I have hands up. My partner has hands down, but we're the same partners. So we don't go crazy. Like, of course. You know, it's not the hardest punches we're throwing, or mm -hmm. hardest kicks, let's say. But it gives us a chance to, you know, troubleshoot those kinds of guards. That's a really interesting because I'm sure that some fighters gear towards certain, I guess, defensive stances or how they defend, and you're essentially forcing them out of their comfort zone to learn it, how to do it in a different way. Yeah, I really like that. That's really cool. Yeah, thank I'm gonna, you. Yes. I, yes, that's really. That's why Frost cool. is a great coach. Well, yeah, that's, that we could we could see that from the amount of phenomenal fighters that have come from your camp yeah. too. But also, like we see it in the in the corner work and and just in yeah. the development you and you got in in his fighters. Um, yeah. I, I actually this is something that I'm actually curious about because I actually noticed something that you know you were uh, leg kick defense. Um, I noticed that you do eat you know a fair amount of them, generally because it seems like you're a little bit heavier on the on the front foot sometimes. Uh, is that something that you guys have been, uh, have to address when you're dealing with, like, especially when you were doing the Philly show, like you were, yeah. you know, you, you were a little heavy on the front, but so they opened you up to the leg kick. Yeah. Is that something you guys are working on, I guess, or addressing, or how are you addressing it? I'm very curious, like, how do you weigh the options defensively, offensively? Yeah. Sorry, someone just keeps calling me, but yes, uh, I'm trying, I keep no hanging problem. up on them, but they keep calling. No the problem. Um, yeah, so no, definitely we're addressing it. But for me, like, um, 
it's definitely not the right thing to do. Like I should have been checking those kicks more. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to close the distance. Right. And I was those uh, the kicks weren't affecting me in any way really at the moment. But now after uh, one of my teammates, Mandel Nalo, um, we had a fight recently and he was doing the same thing I was doing in the sense that the guy was kicking my leg in a way that there was not really anything to respect. And I'm using him, the fact that he's kicking my leg, to punch him, mm -hmm. score my, my, my strikes. I feel like I'm winning those exchanges. And then, I don't know if you saw his last fight, but he got kicked in, the, in his nerve. And his leg, the, the bottom of his leg from his knee down went completely numb. Mm -hmm. And he rolled on his ankle and he sat and he couldn't get up and he, he stopped the fight. He got declared a TKO. Right. He lost. But up to that point, none of the leg kicks affected him, like, personally. Like he, he, he said he didn't feel any damage in his thigh or in his knee or anything. But one leg kick hit him in the nerve, and then his foot went numb for the next 20 minutes until we got backstage and he was able to walk again. You know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. like, I've learned my lesson from my fights, but also from, from his fight and other guys who that's happened to. And then we're addressing it now. <laughs> it's <laughs> addressing like, it big yeah. So, it's kind of just like, eh, it doesn't hurt. I'll move along. I'll just go through it type thing where you kind of were making like that tactical decision to just be like, I'll let him yeah. kick my leg so I can close the distance. You know, if someone like Gaethje kicked my leg Eesh. the first time and it hurt me, I would be checking immediately. Right. But if a guy who's got like mediocre leg kicks, there's nothing really to worry about. I was like, let me just use this to my advantage to close the distance. Mm -hmm. You know, so whatever. But which, which I shouldn't do it. You know what? It, it's wrong of me to allow the leg kicks to add up because I'm rolling the dice that he might hit me in the nerve where my leg goes numb and then whether or not it hurt, my leg's not working. Right. So now I know. Either that or you have to do a Dustin Poirier and just hurt them so badly when they kick your leg, it doesn't yeah, matter yeah, no, anymore. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, I, you, you, it's not, no decision is 100% good and no decision right. is 100% wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And as a fighter, it's, you're making the call in the moment and hindsight is always twenty twenty. Right. You know, so like I'm always trying to make the best decision I can. Right. With what I'm able to see and feel. You know, like I remember like my first fight, my, my first fight in the UFC against uh, Reginaldo. Mm -hmm. In round three, my brother was so upset about round three because I got hit so much more. Like all, almost all the strikes that landed in that fight were in round three. Right. Okay. But I got, like if you watch the fight in slow motion in the opening exchange, I... I stepped in right away. If you watch it in slow motion, you see me get poked in the eye. But I was so into, like, I'm going to crush him that I didn't stop the fight for the eye. I was like, I'm going to go through it. But my, my vision started to get more and more blurry, and I couldn't see. I was seeing three, four of him, and the depth was off completely. Like, I couldn't tell how close or how far we were. And I just stopped my footwork because I told myself in the fight, like, during the fight, my self-talk was, if I stand my ground properly and I keep my chin down and he lands a strike, I'll take it. If I move too much and I don't know where he is because I moved and I can't see him, I'll get hit with a shot that's going to put me down. I can't get hit with a shot that puts me down. And like when the fight ended and I won, Frost backstage was like, what the heck was happening in round three? I said, Frost, I couldn't see. I could not see. And then the whole night I had an ice pack on my eye because I Anytime my eye was open, the wind was like killing me, the pain, because I had like a, um, I had a cut in my, uh, what do you no, call it? Um, not my eyelid, on my eyeball. Uh, oh, the cornea. My, my cornea. My, my cornea was slit. 
Okay, so I had a, so any, the wind that was blowing the dust, like, you know, because there's a little bit of particles in the air. It was cold. It was forcing my eye closed. But in the fight, my eyes were open because of the adrenaline. Well, my eye was burning, man. And as soon as the fight ended, I got yeah, backstage. Sure. I, I kept my eye closed for the next three days, man. I couldn't open my eye for three days. That sounds brutal. <laughs> yeah, so Stalin Frost, I, like, around three, I couldn't see anything. I have to ask, yeah. as a fighter, like the, the eye books, I wasn't going to ask about like fouls and stuff, but like there's a, there's kind of like two camps. Um, obviously, it, you know, I'm of the opinion, and I think most people are, that this first foul should be an automatic point deduction because an eye poke can change the course of the fight, whether you meant to do it or not. A groin shot yeah. can change the course of the fight, whether you yeah. meant to do it or not. You shouldn't get three warnings for, you know, you shouldn't be able to cup check the guy three times. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, but right now, the way the the sport is is that you do get multiple chances. Yeah. Whether it should or shouldn't, that's reality. And there's a a a very large section of the MMA fandom that says, like, listen, if you can get away with it, it's part of the game. Go for it. Take it. Like, what's your opinion towards that kind of thought process? Uh, you know, before that fight, I never got poked in the eye. Okay. Oof. And. So, I mean, in the, during a fight, I've gone poked in the eye, you know, in the gym. Training, right. Training, jiu-jitsu, wrestling, whatever. Done, mm -hmm. It's happened to me, you know, but in fighting. And I think there should be the point reduction on the first one. If, if it happens, like, the guy did something defensive, like he, he, like, he pulled away and reached out like this, that's a cop-out. Yeah. That's a complete cop-out. And I'm, the, I'm trying to win this fight. You know, or whoever it happens with, you know, right. whoever's fighting. I mean, he's trying to score and he's doing something legal, and the guy stops his legal offense with an illegal defense. It should be a penalty. It's like, look, I'm about to knock you out. Did you kick me in the groin? Mm -hmm. That should be a point deduction. If that's your way to protect yourself, and I'm about to score big, it should be a point deduction because now I can't score big. Right. And you beat my big score with something outside of the rules. Right. Because I could have done something outside of the rules to score big too. Mm -hmm. You know, so in that sense, yeah. But let's say, for example, if um, we're in like a, we're in a clinch and things are wild and we're both like scrambling, whatever. And like, I, I go to push you and like you duck and I, I poke you eye because of your head movement. And I went to go push you and I wasn't trying to listen that, that. How can you take away a point? I yeah, essentially, you know it's I mean? the same idea as like if you're punching a grounded opponent yeah. and they move their back of their head into the way of the strike, yeah. you shouldn't penalize that. Exactly, the first punch. But right. then if you keep coming, then yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, you know? yeah. Uh, so that, in that sense, I wouldn't take the point right away. Right. So it's kind of situational. Did something, did something like, Ugh. <laughs> oh man, you got to block like this. You got to block like a legally block, not right. block with your fingers flared. Yeah, I kind of wanted to, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to sit behind the computer and say it. Like, I'm curious with how fighters think about it, too. Because like you said, like, if you, you know, if you roll into the punch or the strike and it's illegal, why should I be penalized for that? I agree with that. Yeah. That's a really yeah. good point. Um, I want to pivot towards weight cutting. Um, yeah. because, I, I mean, I, I, ask, I ask because it's such a big topic and such a big thing in MMA, the way MMA is structured right now. We, you know, or at least before the coronavirus at least uh 25 30 35 pounds even fighters are massive they're fighting two weight classes below what they probably should be fighting at mm. you know and when i was watching the ramos fight the thing that's one of the things that stuck out to me is the size 
of Ricardo Ramos. But he was huge, man. He's massive. He's massive. <laughs> like, he's just massive. He's like, yeah. They even commented on it, but, like, he looks like a lightweight. And yeah. he did. He looked like he was two full weight classes above you. Yeah. One, my first question is roughly how much weight do you have to cut for your fights? Um, and one, two, I know we know in the coronavirus a lot of fighters are fighting up a weight class because they can't make the weight, because they can't train properly. So what are your thoughts on weight cutting in MMA in general? What do you think sh can or should be done? Like, should it be something like the one, the one uh, system where they do percentages or stuff like that? You have to weigh in a certain percentage of your weight, otherwise you can't fight. What are your thoughts on, on weight cutting in general and what could be done to, I guess, make it more natural weight classes? I feel like guys are always going to fight. People, fighters, or I should say guys, because, you know, there's women who fight MMA right. as well. I mean, but uh, everyone, like, some fighters are always going to look to take an advantage of weight cutting. It's going to happen. And no matter, like, whether you do 1FC style, like, I actually like the way they do it. It's actually a really good idea. It's very safe. It's more, it's very safe for the fighters. Like, they try to protect them mm -hmm. and whatever. Uh, but I still feel like guys are finding ways to cheat. Like, I don't know how they cheat, but I'm sure there are some of the guys are trying right. to cheat or whatever. And they're, they're messing it all up and stuff like that. But uh, I don't have a problem cutting weight. Okay, I don't right. really have a problem with it because I, I work with professionals. Like, I've worked with, with John, uh, George Lockhart many times. He's an amazing, uh, phenomenal nutritionist for weight cutting. I worked with Mike Dolce in my last fight. I felt incredible. Like, why don't these guys seek help? Like, these guys who've done it with a lot of fighters and train and do work with the best. And, you know, you got to find the right weight class for you. I do agree. Like, you can't overcut and you can't not cut enough because it's the way it is. If we did same-day weigh-ins, it could probably solve the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, or, or one hour prior to event weigh-ins. Who knows? <laughs> that might solve the problem for everybody. The only I thing I would worry about, the only thing I'd worry about is if fighters are still going to do it. <laughs> guys are still gonna do it right and they're still gonna suffer from it but hey that's like you can't win with this with this you can't win with it there's no way to beat the guy who's gonna try to get an advantage the guy who's overdoing it is gonna overdo it no matter what the scenario is mm -hmm. do you feel like um i i know with with peds and it my it, it's definitely catching more people but do you feel like you saw it as uh, restrictions on the, the IV and stuff and like weight cutting, do you think that's been helpful or, or harmful towards fighters overall? Because fighters are still cutting the weight, but they can't rehydrate the same ways. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? One Sorry, one second. The guys finally stopped calling me. I'm just trying to tell them why. <laughs> no problem. Don't worry about it. Okay, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Say it again. So, sorry. Sorry. I missed it. Um, the the uh, USADA, the weight cutting portion of it, um, yeah. Uh, what are what are your thoughts on, on on that overall? Like not being able to rehydrate with IVs, yeah. do you feel that like overall that's been harmful or helpful towards fighters in I guess their their weight cutting? Because we know that fighters are still cutting tremendous yeah. amounts of weight. My fight with Ramos, I uh, had a hard time reloading. Like my body for some reason it just I uh, didn't do well mm -hmm. for that weekend. I've cut a million times. And then the, my fight after, when I fought uh, Vince Morales, it was the best rehydration I've ever had. And, you know, it's obviously without IV either time. But uh, mm -hmm. I think we just have to find what works for you outside of IV. But IVs would definitely help big time. <laughs> it would help immensely. Okay? It would definitely be much easier to reload. Much, much easier. <laughs> but there is ways to do it without. Right. And it took me the fight with Ramos to realize how to do it without. 
and my fight with Morales was definitely a much better reload. And uh, from now on, I'll be okay. But uh, it definitely makes a difference. It's like, the thing is, I don't mind it. If it, it I don't mind you started doing it in the sense that if it, it, it curbs the guys who over-exaggerate their cuts, it's probably better. It's, they're probably saving some people in that sense, you know? Right. And I do feel like a lot of fighters who are saucing too much, like it's crazy. Like people, like still, I, I still feel like 80% of fighters juice, which I can't stand it. But I definitely feel like it forces them to juice less, you know, like or smarter. <laughs> I guess. At, least, at least they're not like 14 to one testosterone. Maybe they're like <laughs> three to one, which is like if your jiu-jitsu is good enough, you could still beat a guy that that juice. So it's still unfair, but you know they're working. It's getting better. Mm-hmm. Somebody just rang my doorbell. I have no idea. One second. Okay. Oh, it's my neighbor, the neighborhood kids. They're coming to play my kids. Uh, don't sorry. worry. Take your time. Don't worry. Seriously. Okay. No, it's good. Thank you. They're in bed. Thank you. Thank you. They're trying to give me a slide for my kids. Sweet, get, sweet, sweet neighbors. That's very cute. That's awesome. Uh, that is awesome. Uh, um, on, on the topic of PEDs in general, um, we know that fighters are still using, like you said, you know, we can't, obviously, a lot of fighters we don't know because of you know, they haven't been caught or whatever it might be. Well, this is a contingent. I, I'm, I'm kind of like split one way or the other also myself, but as a fighter, what are your thoughts on not full-blown legalize everything and just do whatever the hell you want, but I guess a structured system of limiting the amount for recovery, for improving your athletic ability and performance? Because again, fighters have a limited time frame to make their money, to get in, get their fights in, get their money and get out. And, you know, all the issues with pay structure, whatever it might be. Healing faster, being able to recover faster, being able to heal from like the injuries and all those things. Do you, do you think it would maybe be a, uh, an idea of legalizing somewhat and having it work with doctors from the UFC and having it be a structured system as opposed to the wild west, which is what it was, or a USADA ban, but a lot of people are still able to get designer drugs and just do whatever they want at the top level. Well, you know, what are your thoughts on something like that? Well, it, it comes, well, the argument basically is either we're all on it or none of us are on it. Correct. Either one I'm good with. Either one. <laughs> but I won't be on it if it's against the rules. Yeah. That's, you know what I mean? You know, no, like, so, like, like, first on a personal level, I don't have a problem if some fighters like to smoke marijuana or right. do whatever, if they do it to chill out. I, I, like, I get it. Like, on your downtime, some fighters, that's what they want to do, okay? Right. But if you, find, if you sign a UFC contract and in competition, you're not allowed to test for a certain amount of marijuana, regardless of whether or not you're doing it to calm your nerves for the fight or not feel as much pain for the fight or how, if, it's, if you're not using it for the fight technically, but you still pass the thing, it's technically against the rules. You're a professional. You know it. You sign that contract. You know what the requirements are. You don't do, it, don't do that level of it. You know? So, like, I, I, like, I'm not shitting on guys because they smoke weed. Like, I don't care right. if they smoke weed. Right. Nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. But I'm just saying, try to avoid things that get you in trouble. If it's, if it's not that big of a deal, then don't do it. Yeah. Essentially, you, know, you, sign, you, know, like, you know the rules. Don't break them. Yeah, don't break them. And like, 
I know, like, I get, I got to a Twitter thing uh, at the beginning of quarantine because I don't go on Twitter much normally. But now, since I've been locked down, I'm on Twitter. The <laughs> hell else are you gonna do? They do the <laughs> actual, and then, like, I, I started getting to people with people about marijuana, like, because somebody got caught. Or back then, with uh, got caught for uh, marijuana. It was uh, Gaslin, right? No, uh, Gaslin too, but another fighter, bantamweight. Right. Uh, I think he won his fight by like 38 second knockout. Obviously, I'm trying to remember who it was. The the the, the 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 weed had nothing to do with him winning. Right. Okay? I'm not saying it helped him win. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Okay. But I remember when we were talking about George fighting one of the, the Nick Diaz, mm-hmm. and we were saying that listen, if he's smoking weed because he's a nervous, anxious guy and he can't fight unless he smokes weed to calm his nerves, that's enhancing his performance because he's going in there with a level head. I'm not saying it's making him stronger, faster, more athletic. But if you're a nervous wreck, I'm going to fight you as a nervous wreck. I don't want to fight you with a cool head if marijuana... Is that why marijuana is illegal in competition? I don't know. I don't know why. I think why it is it illegal in competition? I want to know why. Like, do, they, do they explain I think it, it might have more to do with the, the fact that it's just illegal in general. Okay, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know though. But listen, if they take it out of the rule book, then I wouldn't care if they smoke right. weed. I don't care. But the fact that it's in the rules, you got to respect it. That's all I'm saying. I hear that. Um, I, I mean, first of all, thank you for having this much time to talk to me. It's been awesome. Yeah, um, no, my pleasure, man. Thank you. Before we go, I, I, I mean, I'm, I pretty much run out of stuff to, to ask, but if there's anything you want to <laughs> talk about, like we can definitely talk about it. But uh, is there anything you want to plug? Any sponsors that you want to shout out? I want to make sure that you get that in as well. Um, Twitter, your Instagram, where they can find you if anybody wants to say hi, show their support. Yeah, you guys can check me out on uh, Instagram. It's just my name, Eamon Zahabi. And uh, hopefully my next fight, I'll put on such a performance. You guys will become fans of mine. I would really appreciate that you guys check out my next fight. I'm really going to leave it all on the table. It's the last fight on my UFC contract, so I'm really trying to score big to really keep my name, you know, with a good reputation for TriStar and put my team on my back, you know. And I want to be that Canadian fighter for the nation. Like, after George, we don't have a lot of superstars taking the reins, and... Madison Square Garden against Ramos. That was my night to take the reins. And I kind of dropped the ball that night, but I'm going to make it up to everybody. My next fight, guys, stay posted. I want to put on a big show for everyone. Awesome. Uh, make sure that you guys do go show your support and love for Eamon. Find him on Twitter. Find him on Instagram. Tell him, tell him hi. Yeah. <laughs> say, ben, say thank hi. you very much for show your love. interview. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. You're, you're definitely a friend of the fight site. We really you. appreciate it. You're welcome back on anytime. If you want to just, you know, Talk, yeah. talk fights. If you want to just review fights, we have podcasts uh, before and after the fights, usually depending on the on which fight card it is. So yeah. I'm sure they would love to have you on to kind yeah, of break it down. Absolutely. That sounds great. I would love to, to do it, test my skills with you guys, see how I do. <laughs> uh, and if I do hit an X guard sweep or transition into a leg lock, we're me. talking about it. Okay, yes. we're going to get it. Okay, we're, we're getting that in. I 100% look forward to that. And I'm yeah. going to just be tweeting about like, that was me, that was me, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, bro. Thank you so much. Uh, before we go, make sure that, again, you check out thefightsite.com. Great articles, great content. Trust me, you will not regret it. Make sure you check us out on Patreon to support us directly. Ask Discord, questions on the podcast, tons of stuff that you can rec- uh, do depending on the tier levels. Uh, follow us on, uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Make sure you hit the bell icon. Like, comment, share uh, with the video. Show some love on this one as well. Leave a comment <laughs> below. Um, Stitcher, Apple, and Spotify, if I'm not mistaken leave a five-star rating it really does help uh thanks everyone again for listening this has been another fight site uh interview uh let me see i was